0: The views and opinions expressed in this podcast may be triggering and don't necessarily reflect the views of myself or Blue Matter Project. Please note that I'm not a licensed therapist or a doctor and all opinions of our guests are for informational purposes and should not be considered medical advice. For any questions about your own health, please consult a medical professional. Mm-hmm. Hey, it's Elaine Clark, and welcome back to the Mindful Matters podcast. On this episode today, we're talking all about the power of the subconscious mind. This episode features Scott Robinson, who is known as the Brain Guy. Scott is a senior lecturer with the Academy of Applied Movement Neurology, and he supports people to achieve balance by optimizing nervous system communication and upgraded subconscious programming. He works with people to improve performance, stress reduction, trauma resolution, pain and dysfunction, and he believes it's the brain and the nervous system that controls our life's outcomes. We get into a bit of his own personal journey in today's conversation. We talk about the power of the subconscious mind, how powerful emotions like resentment and jealousy can manifest negative outcomes. We touch on limiting beliefs, and we also touch a bit on adaptive and passive neuroplastic this is a really interesting conversation, so I hope you enjoy today's episode. And before I bring Scott on, just a quick reminder, don't forget to leave us a rating and review. Thank you so much to the people who already have. We love hearing from you. And don't forget to share this episode. If you know someone who would enjoy this kind of conversation, definitely share it with just one person. All right, let's dive right in, Scott. Welcome to the Mindful Matters podcast.
1: Thank you very much for having me, Elaine. It's really nice to be here. I'm, I'm excited to get to have this chat.
0: Me too. I'm, you know, I'm really looking forward to this conversation with you today. You've got, you've got such an interesting background, and your particular area of focus and the work that you do is so fascinating to me, which we will get into in in more depth soon. But first. Uh, tell us a little bit about you and what inspired you on this path.
1: Okay. Well, look, it's kind of how far do you want to go back? I feel like I'm living my truth. So I'm, I'm literally just doing exactly what I'm meant to be here doing. And it literally it sort of lights me up every single day to get to do the work that I get to do. So we can kind of trace that all the way back to me as a very, very, very little kid. And we can kind of see synchronicities there. But essentially, if we want to go back just as far as just professionally, um, I was a personal trainer. I was an athlete who became a personal trainer. And as an athlete, I just wanted to be the best. As, the pers- as a personal trainer, I wanted to be the best, but also do the very best I could for people and then just get that best result. So it wasn't, it was no longer about me getting the best result. It was about seeing the best result in the people that I was training and coaching. And then I kind of worked out that I could have more of an impact if, if I was fixing things. So I kind of went down the, the pathway of rehabilitation and, and then it took me a little while, but I realized that I could be way more effective if I started to be able to fix or have an, an influence over the governing systems that were governing these movement dysfunctions and these pains that a lot of the people that were coming to me for. So I essentially, I found the brain, which you know, which was an incredible rabbit hole to, to go and dive into. And and so now I call myself the brain guy. I'm so known as the brain guy on Instagram and Facebook. And I think if we're looking at what it is that I do, it's kind of, it's it's that rule number one. It's that basic general principle with the brain is that there's just always more. And that's basically what I found. So when I dove into that rabbit hole and I was coming at things from sort of the, from a level of, of scientific understanding, a level of neuroscience and and we literally I was looking at the brain and the nervous system as kind of the be all end all as the governing systems of the body and I was very very blessed very very fortunate that I was never tied to one paradigm that made me look at the body a certain way or look at the nervous system a certain way or just look at the results and the presentations that people that of the people who are standing in front of me in one particular way and I never had to fit my answers or fit my understanding within a a particular framework. So I was kind of free to just allow these different presentations and these different results that I was getting, just allow them to be and then allow understanding to come to me in time as I was kind of discovering things. And so what I came to understand was, again, there was just more. So I ended up diving into the energy systems of the body. So the human energy field and these other dimensions that Um, that make up the human being and then diving into the mind and so we have these different levels of mind and and they they also largely govern our experience of life and so when we start talking about the subconscious mind which we're going to talk about a bit today we're talking about an area of our mind that literally controls a huge amount of our behaviors, our emotions, our emotional reactions to things, our perceptions, our homeostatic balance, our thought patterns, literally you name it, we have programs for all of it, and the brain is always trying to run on, on autopilot. So the 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 basic qualification for people to get to do work with me, I generally say, is, is as long as you have a brain. If you have a brain, we can definitely do some work with you. Um, and literally because the brain, the nervous system, and all those, the energy. Uh, the energy systems of the body and the mind, because that just covers pretty much all of our life experience and and all of our experience of life, um, there's not a lot that we can't work with. There's not a lot that we can't influence and change in profound and profoundly positive ways. So that's basically... That's basically how things evolved for me, looking to try and get the very best result from people. And if you're looking to try and get the very best result, will you just find yourself diving deeper into that rabbit hole to understand more so that you can actually be able to do more and influence a, a greater and greater result?
0: Yeah. Well, just to build off of that a little bit, one of the things that you say, and I'll quote you here, if we want to get the very best out of life, then it's an absolute imperative to have the highest functioning neurologic hardware and software. What is this hardware and software that you're talking about here?
1: Okay. Excellent question. So, your hardware and your software. So you can look and this is this is the language that came to me when I when I first had that discovery, that first, that little light bulb went off and I realized I was working with movement dysfunctions with people, and essentially what I was doing as a personal trainer was I was trying to change movement I was trying to resolve movement dysfunctions by moving a peripheral joint or literally introducing a peripheral stimulus and I was trying to overwhelm a centrally driven signal so there was a centrally driven signal coming from the central computer being the brain that was holding the body in a specific pattern and so what I came to understand was that if I could just go to the motherboard if I could go to that that central computer itself and if I could if I could hit the right switches then I could change things at the periphery and that's the way that it worked out so that I could literally just understand which buttons to push in the brain and then the movement dysfunction would just change. And so the, the, the movement output would change and the person's dysfunctional pain would literally just dissolve very, very often right in front of your eyes. Now, what we're talking about with hardware is we're talking about all these different hardwired neural pathways. So we can look at axons and dendrites. We can look at all these synaptic connections and we can look at where all these little electrical signals and the electric, le- electrochemical connections are, formed, uh, are held in the brain. And when we have optimal communication, so when all of those networks, and you've got a network of 86 plus billion neurons in your brain, um, when all of that is firing and communicating effectively, then the nervous system thrives. And one thing that I say a lot of times to people is with, with regards to movement output and strength output is we don't build strength, you know. We all think we're going to the gym and building strength, or doing bodyweight exercises and, and building strength by increasing the number of repetitions that we're doing, and increasing the intensity of, of, of weight that we're lifting. But really, it's your nervous system that grants you strength. If you if you can allow your nervous system, if you can facilitate optimal communication in your nervous system, then you will have an you, you'll have a dramatic increase in nervous system output, and as such, neuromuscular system output. So when the brain can see the body, and the way it sees its body is via, via its vast network of sensory receptors. When that when that communication network is open and clear and coherent, when there's commute there's clear and, communi- and coherent communication in the nervous system, we can experience uh, optimal or somewhere close to optimal nervous system output. So that's an imperative. So if you, we need to have the brain communicating and the nervous system communicating clearly us to be able to function at our best and that that's going to make sense to a lot of people who work who work in any way shape or form with movement they'll understand and they will have seen when there is just inadequate communication to a particular joint or to a particular um, body part and you can demonstrate something to someone you can show them you can touch them and try and guide them through a movement and it's you can just look and see that they just can't get it because there just isn't adequate communication the brain very often just can't clearly see that body part so it doesn't know how to coordinate or move that body part
0: yeah
1: so that's a hardware the software that we're talking about is all of the subconscious programming so your subconscious programs and this is we kind of need to go look at really quickly and just touch on why we have these programs. So the brain is always looking to try and run on autopilot. It's looking to automate as much as it possibly can about its day-to-day function. And the reason that it wants to do that is because survival is is pretty much the highest priority of the brain and in the nervous system. So survival of the organism, then survival of the species. So the brain is looking to try and optimise its energy efficiency. So if it's expending less energy to get the job done, as in hunt, gather, make sure that you are refueled and you can continue on, and then you can uh, propagate the species, then it's basically doing its job. It's keeping you alive so it can fulfill its its purpose. So the way that it needs to make sure that it does that is having an efficient, it, it needs to be very efficient about its energy expenditure and its energy consumption, because the brain demands a huge amount of energy. The brain's literally around 2% of your total body mass. In most people, it's less and it demands around 20% of the total metabolic of the, the your total metabolic consumption so it's it's this tiny little organ inside your skull and it's literally demanding 20 like around 20% one fifth of the total body's energy requirements so if it's going to go through the day and just calculate and have to compute and try and work things out in every given moment that the energy expenditure goes up if it can just run automated programs well, then that's way more efficient if it if it looks at a given scenario and it can just recognise the, the scenario, predict what it needs, and then literally just hit a program, hit execute on whatever particular program is required in that moment, that is way more efficient in terms of, of energy expenditure and energy usage. So the brain holds all of these programs. Now, all of those programs which govern our behaviours, they govern our choices, they govern our, our preferences, our biases... I said, literally so many of our physiological functions, it's all running from programs. Those programs are formed from subconscious beliefs. And it's like a, it's, it's like a framework or a matrix, this matrix of rules, which are made up by of these subconscious beliefs. And these beliefs are downloaded through childhood. And so we, we download them from our parents and we, we absorb them uh, through our childhood, just observing people around us. And then as we move through life, experiences that impact on the brain or experiences that kind of garner enough attention that the information will reach the subconscious mind which is to say that it gets past the conscious noise and into the subconscious space then that can shape that can shape our beliefs and then that can change and alter the programs and so generally what we're talking about as we as we move into adulthood and we move into later life it's it's typically the more negative experiences and so traumas and other emotional experiences because the brain has a negativity bias and so it pays more attention to those negative stimuli so we're more likely to get reshaped more quickly by negative experiences than we are positive experiences the brain will just not pay automatically pay as much attention to those um and there's there are evolutionary reasons for that but essentially that's what we're talking about when we say hardware and software so your hardware is all the neural neural circuitry and the software is all the programming
0: Yeah, well, I love that you brought up trauma, because I think the deepest hooks into how powerful this can be is when we look at trauma and how it affects the nervous system. It's fascinating to me that the effects of emotional trauma on the brain are actually comparable to the effects of a traumatic brain injury, What specific parts of the brain are affected? So if we if we think about the hardware, um, and how does this show up from a nervous system standpoint? Like, what can you say about this? Mm.
1: Well, like pretty much everything else in the brain, it's complex. So it could it could work its way out any number of different ways, and I wouldn't necessarily attempt to try and predict it. Um, It's more so what we're talking about is if you have a traumatic brain injury, then the area the areas that are affected via the trauma, as in the impact, um, and where the brain sort of rebounds off the inside of the cranium. So where there's actual mechanical stress on the brain, then those areas will absolutely be be affected. Um, with an emotional trauma, it can it's it can be where the where those emotional events are encoded within the brain. And really, what we're looking at, the biggest thing, what brings so to what what brings us unstuck, so to speak? and this is in terms of of the dysfunction that we experience in very often the years afterwards after a traumatic brain injury or after an emotional trauma, is it's glial system activation. What we're talking about is neuroinflammation. So you're talking about inflammatory processes in the brain. Now, this is something that it's not, I think it's increasingly understood and it's certainly being looked at far more broadly than it was previously. And you look at sports like the NFL and uh, here in Australia, rugby league and rugby union, we now have all these co- these concussion protocols, which are fantastic, and we try and protect our we try and protect our athletes and get them off the field um, from when they, when they've had a, a brain insult. The the big thing with brain injuries, and this is exactly the same with emotional trauma as it is with traumatic brain injuries, it's very often not the first insult that has the greatest impact on us, and the reason for that has to do with the the ongoing effects of neuroinflammation. So neuroinflammation comes from what's called glial cells. Now, these glial cells are, they're, they're scavengers. Typically, they're scavengers within the brain that, um, that scavenge around for neuronal debris, and they clean up the brain. They literally clean up the brain, and then that waste, they do that generally at night while we're resting, and that waste is then passed out through what we call the glymphatic the clearance pathway. So, and that is, that is, anti, that is inherently an anti-inflammatory process. So there's inflammation, and that's how the the brain burns up. It these these glial cells kind of surround damaged neuronal tissue. Then once they've surrounded and engulfed this damaged neuronal tissue, that that's an inflammatory process. And then there will be an anti-inflammatory process. There's there's anti, there are anti-inflammatory reflexes within the brain, which then clear that that inflammation out of the system, and the brain returns itself to homeostasis. And in a brain injury, so in a when you have a traumatic brain injury or you have any insult to the brain, within three to five minutes of that insult, the blood-brain barrier naturally opens itself, um, which then allows these different macrophages to come into the brain and that triggers this inflammatory response so that the brain can then begin to um, start that inflammatory process of trying to, to heal itself, and that is a naturally occurring process. And then sometime after that, there's meant to be an anti-inflammatory process, which we've just discussed, and so then the brain can slowly return itself back to normal. What happens, and this is really interesting, these glial cells get turned on by those particular macrophages. They get turned on and they begin to inflame. Mm -hmm. But glial cells can can activate other glial cells. So when you have glial cells that are activated as a result of a trauma, they can then activate other glial cells in the surrounding areas. And so that infl- that, in- that inflammation can spread. Now, in a in a normal scenario, that for and which would be that first insult, that will all that that will all experience anti that'll all be subject to the anti-inflammatory reflex, and that will all typically return itself back to homeostasis. Glial cells can become primed. And so what happens when you've had that first insult? the glial cells can activate, they can inflame, and then they can return themselves back to balance. But it's like they become primed, and we can look at that more like a hair trigger, and it means that they can be set off far more easily. And so that second insult, which can happen years later down the track, and it it doesn't need to be anywhere near as intense, it doesn't need to be anywhere near as traumatic, but when that kicks off that inflammatory process, because the glial cells are primed and the glial cells in the surrounding areas are primed, they're all on a hair trigger, which basically means that when once they start activating, there's a cascade of activation and you now have a cascade of neuroinflammation going on in your brain. So when those glial cells are engulfing neuronal tissue, they're no longer just engulfing damaged neuronal tissue, they begin to engulf just healthy neurons. And as they're inflaming and gobbling up and burning up these healthy neurons, then essentially what's happening is it's basically burning the house down and that can go on for years. Um, It's been evidenced uh, cases of neuroinflammation going on for like eighteen years, uh, and and I would tend to suspect that it, it lasts. It can can last longer than that. I just think that's just what we've evidenced. But it is to say that we that we can experience those new, that neuroinflammation for years and years and years. And every neuron and every neuronal connection that gets engulfed and then essentially burned up, that's a loss of that equates to a loss of function. And if you lose one neuron, you you that's that's pretty much going to be imperceptible. You're not going to be able to perceive the loss of function from one neuron. But over over the course of weeks, months, and years, with that in, that inflammatory process going on, then you're going to experience a loss of function. And so, what you'll experience, you can experience heightened sensitivity to light, to sound, to smell. All those things can kick off your kick off symptoms. You can um, you can be dealing with uh, ex- exercise induced fatigue. So literally, when you attempt to go and exercise and move, and it just absolutely lays you flat. Um, emotional irritability and, and kind of explosiveness. Um, so it's there are the, and obviously people who struggle with insomnia, um, the mental health conditions like you know depression and anxiety and OCD. All all of those things, all of those conditions correlate with neuroinflammation of some kind and this is the thing that we don't necessarily recognize and realize it can be coming from anything because we may have had some mildly traumatic emotional trauma um, as a child experienced no real dysfunction but then we have uh, a relationship breakdown or we have a different emotional trauma in our teenage years or our adult years and that makes the previous trauma relevant because all of that information is stored in the limbic brain and we can we can potentially begin to experience those symptoms so It's more just if we can have awareness. It's pretty much about awareness. If people can understand and recognize what those symptoms are, then we can start to act and do positive things to mitigate those that that neuroinflammation and return the brain to back to balance.
0: Yeah, gosh, this is so fascinating, and uh, it it's reminding me that you know often I think a lot of limiting beliefs they stem from traumas and specifically you know emotional traumas. And limiting beliefs, this is something that I'm becoming more and more attuned to in myself. Um, they are these sort of insidious, self-sabotaging thoughts that keep us from starting a business that we're passionate about or finding a relationship that we want or leaving one that we don't want. Um, they can keep us stuck in addictive or unhealthy behaviors. Uh can you speak a little bit into this and how it sort of relates to the subconscious mind? Just to circle back to, you know, the the power of the subconscious mm. mind.
1: Yeah, limiting beliefs are huge, and the thing that we don't realize is humanity. So our entire civilization, we are literally swimming in a soup of limiting beliefs, and we down and we just download those. They're they're literally um, there's a morphogenetic field. So what we have a morphogenetic field is basically a field of information. And so we're all surrounded in these different morphogenetic fields. And so when we see when we see learning from one generation to the next, and so we can see children in the in subsequent generations learn lessons faster. They just pick things up faster than their than their parents. And then Essentially, and then the next generation after that, they can learn faster again. There's like there's these inbuilt lessons that the parents learn, they get passed on to the children, and the children pick those pick those lessons up just that little bit quicker. And and this has been evidenced many times in mouse studies and so morphogenetic fields are literally fields of information and we're all surrounded by them. So there's positive information, but there's also the beliefs of others. So when people believe that things are just not possible and again so many of our the beliefs that we're surrounded by life's not perfect life is meant to be hard life is meant to be a challenge nothing is easy there's there's literally all of that is what we're exposed to and when we're little kids we're not thinking critically we don't think analytically so children's brainwaves just exist in a theta state which is essentially like just downloading so kids from ages 0 to 7 are pretty much just downloading information and they're just downloading as much information as they possibly can. And they're using all, their brains are using all of that so that they can create down the track all of the subconscious programs that that brain is going to want to be able to automate all of its processes and get through life. And so as the brain is growing and developing, it takes a huge amount of energy, and that's why you see kids needing needing naps while they're while they're when they're so little. That yes, they're using energy for growing, but that the brain is just is just chewing up so chewing through so much energy as it goes through, and it's and it's downloading this information and trying to create these programs. Now, those kids are literally downloading all of those all of the limitations that their parents are putting onto them, um, and that they see from people around them, um, and and essentially it's difficult to unwind that because one, most people aren't necessarily aware of it because everybody's walking around um, confirming those those beliefs. And so I'll give you an example. And one example is aging. Now, there are loads of texts and loads of information about times in human history, different ages, when people were um, living much longer. So longevity was, was far greater. Now, we have three different ages. You have your chronological age, which is the age on your birth certificate. You have your biological age, which is something that people tend to focus on a lot more these days, which is basically the age of your organs and the age of your body. So literally the age of all the tissues in your body, biologically speaking, if we do exercise and we and we eat the right foods, we've worked out that we can have an influence on the biological age of our tissues and of our organs. So that has an effect on literally our physiological expression. And then we have our psychological age. And your psychological age is literally, at a subconscious level, how old you truly believe you are. Now, and you can see this from people. You've, you've Everybody would have seen 50-year-olds who look like they are 75 to 80 and just really just waiting for death. Um, really, really slowed down and kind of not given up on life, but just accepted that everything is just going downhill and they don't move as well and and life is hard and everything is really challenging and they just don't seem to have energy. And then you have other 50-year-olds who are literally running around like 25-year-olds and and they're doing calisthenics and they're, you know, keeping up with younger counterparts, still going to gyms and still participating in all these high-intensity classes and and literally you have two people of the same chronological age expressing very different psychological ages and then you can see that so essentially what you see from people in terms of what the the age they express is the combination of their chronological age their biological age and their psychological age and obviously the psychological age is, is the one with the greatest potential for change now if we if we are kind of told and we are told by just experience just observation experience that you know oh old age is just tough life sucks then you die Uh, and we look around and we see everybody getting older and getting slower and slowing down, it it then becomes not just a matter of me having to try and change my own values and think that I'm younger. I need to somehow remove myself from that confirmation that I'm experiencing every day when I walk around and I see the limitations of others. So we're influenced, our limitations are, are influenced by what we see and what we absorb from our environment around us. Um, they are influenced by what we what we hear from others, and then they're influenced by our own life experience. And so, when you talk about traumas, absolutely, those traumas will influence it will, will influence us and create limiting beliefs. And so, a limiting belief is just something that literally caps our possibility as to you know what we actually believe is truly possible. Uh, and when we overturn limiting beliefs in the subconscious mind, that's really is taking the handbrakes off life, and that that can be incredibly liberating for people. Yeah,
0: so. You know, is it possible to reprogram our subconscious mind, and and how can we do that? Because I think these limiting beliefs they are so deeply wired into our nervous system. Uh, is it how do we program the the subconscious mind?
1: Okay. So this is something that I do with clients. And so there's kind of there's different ways to go about it, obviously. And I, I can really only speak about the way that I go about it, and then I can talk about the way that I kind of recommend for people to do it on their own. Um so with the way that I go about it is very specific and we will literally establish a dialogue, we'll establish communication with the nervous system, we'll establish communication with the subconscious mind, and we'll establish communication with the superconscious mind, which is a level of mind that uh is, is literally connected to all the information in the universe. So that's kind of, that's the level of mind that we refer to as the higher intelligence of the body or the intelligence of the body. And it just knows. It always has, it always, always, always has the answers. So the process that I work with, we can go in and we can actually identify what the limiting beliefs actually are. And then we can identify what do we actually need to put into upgrade? Because it's not necessarily about, and this this is, I think, a really key consideration is, that one of the limiting beliefs that we have in society is that we've pinned forward progress to understanding and and you'll hear this a lot from people and I get this a lot people will come to me for help but they'll they'll be asking i just want you to teach me uh, a couple of steps and things that i can do on my own that'll be really helpful because then i take i'm taking control and i'm empowering myself with that knowledge and i can i'll be able to move forward and we, the way that we look at things is we're, we're, we're a systematic animal. We've decided, you know, we, we, we love a system. The brain loves a pattern. And so we like to pull things apart and then try and understand all of the pieces. And then when we can understand all the pieces, we kind of put that jigsaw puzzle back together. And then it's like we can see where the next piece is going to go. And so it's a long process to sort of break things down, rebuild them and then see where the next step is and then sort of keep going that way. So that's kind of moving forward by our understanding. I even say that we've kind of done that with the human body. We've taken, we've you know pulled it apart, looked at all the pieces, um, and try and understand how each piece works. And then we've created this mechanical model for the body where we kind of feel like we can almost play Jenga with it because we feel like we can we can understand it to a level that maybe we can just remove some pieces and, and it'll still work. But that is that's essentially trying to move forward by our understanding. The mind doesn't actually need that. the The mind is absolutely limitless, and I'm saying this to people all the time. Your your mind doesn't always need to have understanding. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't strive for understanding. Understanding is wonderful and empowering yourself with knowledge is fantastic. But we don't need to get stuck because your superconscious knows the answers and it literally can download those answers. And so we don't necessarily when we when we're when we're overturning limiting beliefs or when we're unwinding trauma, we don't need to go back. And wade through the trauma. We don't need to go back and just experience the limiting belief and how and 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 all of how that's impacted on us in our life. We can literally just download the information from the super conscious that will result. It'll dissolve that limiting belief and upgrade us to something much higher, kind of in the one go. So that's really really fast and it's really really powerful. The way that I recommend for people to do it on their own is you need to be able to get past the conscious mind. And this is the thing. So kids don't have to do that, and that's why they're like kid. We say kids are just so impressionable, and and they learn like sponges because they are literally just absorbing information. Adults are slightly different. So you and I will have conscious noise. We'll have all these different thoughts running around in our head, and we'll, we'll literally have this. It's like a layer of conscious noise that prevents. Very often, it prevents um, these positive messages that we want to get into the subconscious mind to try and change those programs that conscious noise can prevent that. It's like a buffer. Um, And very, very often, and this is where people feel that their subconscious is working against them and it's something they have to try and work against to try and uh, achieve the the experience of life that they would like, is the only things that get through are the negative experiences. and, And that's because of the brain's negativity bias. So what we need to do is try and get past that conscious level of noise. And there are a few ways that you can do that meditation is a fantastic way if you can if you meditate regularly and you can slow the brain down you can slow those brain waves down then you can reach a suggestible state so if you can get yourself down into a theta state so get down to down to alpha down to theta theta is like four to eight hertz if you reach a theta state then thoughts that you're having at that point uh, are basically going to go straight into the subconscious mind. Now that is challenging for a lot of people if you've never meditated, because a lot of people will look at that and just say, "I, I just can't even sit still for five minutes." So that, there's a bit of a barrier there that that's challenging, and even for the people who want to go down that process, down that path, um, there's a there's very often a, a longer learning process, and it's a wonderful journey. I would encourage it in everybody, but it is something that people sort of look at as a negative or as a barrier that they they struggle to get past because there's time that's going to be involved. Um, you can work in a state of hypnagogia and hypnagogia is that that state in between sleep and wake. So in between sleep and wake, which is basically the last the last point at night, the just before you fall asleep and that first moment in the morning when you kind of first are just aware that you're waking up, that's the point at which, You don't have conscious, there's not a lot of conscious thought going on. And so if you have a pre-prepared, if you're already ready to go with a mantra or some affirmations that you want to try and add in, then literally if you have those ready and you know what you want to say, then literally as soon as you're aware that you're starting to wake up, you can start to say those affirmations. And that can make a big difference because those affirmations are actually starting to reach the the subconscious mind. And and this is the thing that I think with affirmations, a lot of people are trying to. my, my understanding of people with affirmations is that most people don't understand what they're doing. They don't understand what affirmations are actually trying to do. And so I've put a few posts out on this because affirmations are a conscious process that are attempting to overwhelm or change a subconscious belief and a subconscious pattern. So when you change that subconscious belief, that belief will then express a new program. And hopefully that aligns with the positive affirmation you're trying to put in. The problem is, is that people just do these affirmations during the day and they think that they're being very, very helpful. But really, all you're doing is just making conscious statements that your subconscious disagrees with. And and it's very difficult to make it to make a change. So you kind of need to affirmations need to be worded a certain way. They kind of need they need to not cause stress. Um, So they can't be kind of too far. They can't be the polar opposite of what your subconscious mind believes because that can just cause stress Uh, and then you're kind of going nowhere at that point. They need to be short. They need to be positive. They need to be present tense. Um, And if you can do them in a way that is going to reach the subconscious mind or at least reduce that conscious noise, then you're a much better chance of actually having an influence. So affirmations can work. um, But then another consideration is we need to actually be as precise as we possibly can words are limiting and that, and that's something that i think not a lot of people pay attention to words are incredibly limiting and what i mean by that is imagine if you've had an emotional experience so if you've if you've ever lost someone in your life you've experienced death of a close friend or a family member it's it's an incredibly emotional experience and so the one that i go to i lost my father to cancer about nearly 10 years ago now and there is absolutely no way that I could feel confident that I could just retell the story to you or to anybody else of what I felt on on the the day of his funeral and just the pain that I experienced there I could I could retell the story but if that doesn't double you over in pain and that doesn't just make your legs go weak and fall out from under you the way that it did the way that it made that experience made made me go on that day then those words are not giving you a they're not making up a complete experience they're not conveying that experience in 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 its entirety to you you can get a context of it but it's a limited context so that's what i mean by words are limiting so if words are limiting and words are the medium by which we're attempting to influence the subconscious mind then we kind of need to make sure those words are really perfect so I will go about that by checking in with the subconscious, checking in with the superconscious and understanding exactly what the words are that we need to be. Um, and it's often very, very specific. But if you're on your own doing that, you kind of want to just sit and just feel the words, just see if you can get a kinesthetic feeling about the words that you're saying. Is that truly what I want? Does that feel truly right to me, those words that I'm using? Or is that just some positive statement that I've pulled off the internet that sounded good? You know. And so if we can kind of get at least give ourselves a chance to... Feel if there's some level of resonance that, like, that, yeah, that, that really feels like the belief that I would like to have, then I think you're a much better chance of actually having a positive influence over that subconscious programming.
0: Yeah. Well, I can see how important it would be to work with someone on this because I think that these subconscious beliefs or these limiting beliefs that we have entrained ourselves into believing, it's almost like we, we don't know that they're there. I mean, they're just, they're unconscious. So uh, finding a way to kind of turn them around and even finding the root of of the issue, I want to say, or the root of the, the subconscious limiting belief, I think that's probably the hardest part. Can you give us an example of, you know, a limiting belief and how someone can turn that around? Like what what, is there a specific example that you can maybe just share with our listeners today?
1: Yeah, there's loads, there's, there's absolutely loads. Um, and I guess I would just say when you're saying that just touching on really quick, when you're saying that we're just not aware of these limiting beliefs, I think you're 100% right. Because basically what each of us does is we just integrate our own experience of life as normal. And, and and then we don't know what the difference from what optimal, from what we could truly, truly, truly be. We don't know what the difference is because we don't have a context and we don't have any awareness of what our true potential actually is. We just know what we're used to. So what I found working with people was that when I was just working with only the brain and the nervous system, really all I could treat was just dysfunction. I could treat pain and treat dysfunction. And and when people would allow that, that was fantastic. We'd get an amazing result. But a lot of times people wouldn't even want to come into clinic. They wouldn't even want to look at it because essentially to step into that space, you kind of need to admit that something's wrong. Uh, and that's certainly the way that people would feel about it. So I think the thing, the the way to go about this stuff is again exactly what we're talking about before: is look at the limitless capabilities of the mind and look forward. We don't need. It's not like the way that I work, and I think the way that we really should be looking at the mind, if we're going to access that limitlessness, is look forward. We don't. It's we don't need to approach things like couch therapy or talk therapy does, um, which is not to say that that can't be helpful, and it's not to say that people that there aren't counsellors out there who do an amazing job. But we don't. The brain doesn't need that. We don't need to go back and wade through heavy, slow emotional experiences to be able to understand them and then move forward. We don't need the understanding. We can just identify where we want to go, and if it's the right, if it's the right direction and the right belief, then that will dissolve the dysfunction and we'll end up with something far greater. So let's say if we work with a limiting belief around relationships. So a limiting belief around relationships is that. Um, I've had many women that have come to me and we've worked on relationships and something that seems to come up reasonably consistently is um, I seem to only want to date emotionally unavailable men. So that, that's that's a limiting belief that I've, I've worked with a lot of people on. Now, generally what it all comes back to, it, it, it always comes back to the self and it generally comes back to wholeness. It comes back to the person just being whole. but but needing to be whole first and be enough for themselves. And once they're enough for themselves, then they're 100% enough for the other person and they can see the whole, their own wholeness reflected in the other person. And then they don't need to go for, for someone who's just never going to be able to fulfill them. The limiting belief, the brain is the most amazing virtual reality machine in the known universe. When we hold a belief, the brain will make that real. So if you hold a belief that I, I i own my limiting belief is that i, I can only find emotionally emotionally unavailable men they're, they're literally the only people that i seem that seem to pop up in you know on my radar that will be down to a belief that that's all that you see and that's all that you find it's not that there aren't other men or other people out there that are, that could be suitable suitable partners it's literally if your brain is if your mind is holding the limiting belief that i only find or i only seem to be attracted to emotionally unavailable men the brain will make that happen, and it will literally, it will literally hone in on the pheromones that are being put out that match with that emotional unavailability, um, and it'll, it, your, 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 the energy consciousness of your human energy field will again be able to detect the, the profiles in the energetic fields of others that match with that unavailability, and essentially what the brain does is if it holds a belief. And again, this comes back to survival. The brain needs to make itself right. It needs to make itself right so that it can believe in its predictions and then it can feel safe because it knows that it's making correct predictions about um, our, our survivability and where all the dangers in our world are. So the brain is always just trying to predict where where the dangers are, it could be around the corner so that it can keep us safe. And so the way that it's going to allow itself to feel safe and most at peace is if it, if it 100% believes in the reality that it's got set up for itself so it will hold these beliefs, and it needs to make itself right. So, mm. if if I am a female and I am in a room full of un- emotionally unavailable men, well, that fits with my belief. If I'm a be- if I'm a female holding that belief that I only I, I only seem to find emotionally unavailable men, and then I find myself in a room full of emotionally unavailable men, well, then that confirms that belief, and then the brain is okay. That's fine. That's great. But if I'm in a crowd of people, and there are all kinds of men around, and I'm a female who holds that belief. My brain will need to make itself right, so it will hone it will hone in on the men in that crowd that happen to be emotionally unavailable, and they're the ones that will that will garner the most attention, and I'll kind of gravitate towards. And then I'll find out at some point down the track that they're emotionally unavailable, and I confirm that belief for myself. So beliefs are self-confirming. And this is why working with the subconscious mind is so powerful, because when you change the beliefs, it's not just that you change what the brain believes, and you walk away and high five yourself, you change the belief, and then the mind begins to make that real for you. And that's and, and that's a huge thing to understand. Because what happens, it's a little bit, it, it, it's, it's self-fulfilling prophecies. It's a little bit like, at that point the brain the mind is going to go and do all of the hard work for you and so the way that people understand i think classically about working with the subconscious mind is as we said before most people feel that they need to work against the subconscious mind because the subconscious mind is working against them holding them in patterns that they don't particularly want to be in giving them an experience of life that they've worked out is not quite what they desire and people work out that they need to get past the subconscious mind but all they have access to is the conscious mind and the conscious mind is only about 5% of our total brain processing. The subconscious mind being the other 95%, it's very difficult to overwhelm 95% of the mind, which is creating all of our emotions and our behaviors, choices, preferences, biases, and, and largely governing our experience of life. It's difficult to overwhelm 95% when you've only got access to 5%. What you're doing so via the process that I work with, and when you're actually when you can when you have an influence over the, the subconscious mind is if you influence that 95% and you change a belief, you've just changed 95% of the mind. So if you have the subconscious belief that I only seem to ever find emotionally unavailable men, and you change that to my perfect partner finds me, or you know, the people, the 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 romantic partners who are perfect for me find me that's what the brain that's what the mind is going to try and make happen and it will put it will make you whole enough it'll look to make you whole enough so that it can make itself right about that belief and so basically what happens is the subconscious mind goes to work for you and it then creates the new behaviors the new feelings the new emotions the new choices and new decisions that are going to put you in those places in those spaces in those emotional states that are going to allow the brain to confirm its new reality and so that's why working with the subconscious is just such a powerful thing because you change when you do that, you can change your reality and you change your experience of life. And then you've only got 5% of the mind to get on board and typically that's the 5% that you already had worked out that you wanted, you, you already worked out what the goal was. So it's not very much of a stretch to get the conscious mind on board from there. You just need to lose the habit at that point.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up as an example because that I feel like that is a very common example and I've definitely heard that from mm-hmm. a lot of us. So thank you for sharing that. And I was recently watching a video where you were speaking about resentment and jealousy as mm-hmm. the most powerful emotions for manifesting negative outcomes. Uh, can you elaborate on this for us? Yeah,
1: absolutely. So resentment and jealousy are incredibly powerful and this is the thing to focus on. When we look at so because of the brain's negativity bias, again, so and and I don't know if this I don't know exactly how true this is. This feels right. I know I've just I've I've heard this spoken about in many different circles, but I've never seen I've never seen a study that's given me these, these quantifiably given me these figures. But when we talk about the brain's negativity bias, it's thought that the brain pays roughly around about 30 times more attention to negative stimuli than it does to positive stimuli. The reason for the negativity bias is because, uh, when you think about evolution, our ancestors, our ancestors who had a negativity bias and paid more attention to negative stimuli or just p- perceived things more negatively, were more likely to survive longer and pass on their genes. Because if you were walking through the bush, heard a rustle in the bushes, and then thought the worst, so you thought that uh, you thought that that could be a negative outcome, and there could be a predator or an enemy there and your first your first instinct was to turn around and run or grab your spear or whatever implement you had and be ready to fight, well, then you're a better chance of defending yourself or getting away and surviving. Our ancestors who had a positivity bias and were walk, walking through the bush and heard that same rustle in the bushes and then thought, oh, that sounds lovely, I'll go and investigate. Well, that one time in 100 when it turns out that it was actually a predator, well, then you may well have just become lunch and then you're a far less chance of being around long enough to pass on your genes to the next to the next generation. So over time, we've evolved via these ancestors that that had more of a negativity bias. And so that's why it's thought that, that the brain pays so much more attention to negative to negative stimuli because that can help us survive. So when we focus on the negative, so rather, rather than focus on so the perceived success of, of, an, of an individual or the perceived positive traits of an individual, and rather we focus on the resentment, we focus on resentment for the material possessions that they have. Maybe it's a really flashy car, maybe it's just they've got the big job, they've got, you know, the the trophy wife or they've got the perfect life and perfect kids or whatever it is that we focus on that we're holding resentment for. What the subconscious is focusing on is it's focusing on the perceived lack. So it's focusing on the negative. It's it's focusing on the lack between what they have and what you don't have. And so when you're focusing on that, then we need to look at what at the way manifestation works. And the way manifestation works is we essentially, if we want to manifest something, we create an image in our mind and then we try to strengthen that signal. Once we've created an image in our mind and created a context, the way quantum mechanics works is in the unified quantum field, all possibilities exist. All possibilities exist because time is eternal. And so if there's infinite time, then there's enough time for all possibilities to actually eventuate. So for whatever possibility that we want to imagine, there is a quantum potential for that. So if I want to imagine a potential for my very best life, there's a quantum potential for that. If I want to imagine a potential for literally just pain and suffering, there is a quantum potential for that. So when I focus on resentment, when I hold resentment for an individual because he's got a Ferrari and I'm just driving around in a, in a, a beat up VW, if I focus on my resentment for that, then essentially what I'm focusing on is how much I don't have. And so I'm focusing on just the lack and how little I have and the emotional states that go with that. And when I'm I'm now holding that picture in mind, I'm now adding a really strong emotion to that. And we need to remember that emotions are essentially a fuel source. If we add emotions to context, then essentially it's like it supercharges the signal. So in terms of manifestation, that's going to manifest our dreams or our nightmares, potentially. It's going to manifest things far more quickly for us. So when I focus on that lack and I hold resentment, I now hold a context. I've got a clear visual about what I don't have. I'm adding a really strong emotion to that. And then I begin to manifest that into physical material reality. And so it's like we're making, we're we're making manifestation work against us. So resentment and jealousy really, really doesn't help us. And, And, and I've seen this manifested so many times in physiological dysfunctions and pain outputs in the body and, I talked about in that particular post this one amazing case that I that I had where um, I had a, an elderly gentleman who his legs had literally just stopped working and there was no medical explanation for it. He'd had some different injuries, and he'd had some surgeries and stuff during you know during the course of his life, but there was no medical explanation for why his legs just stopped working. And it was like his one leg just stopped working, and then it roughly six months later, the other leg stopped working. And by the time I got to see him, he'd been in a wheelchair for seven years and they wanted to amputate his legs he was unaware of this he knew they wanted to amputate his toes and but it turned out he'd lost blood he'd lost circulation in his legs he's um he had all kinds of bed sores and i never actually physically got to see this guy i got to i got to speak with some of the nurses and i got to speak with uh, obviously him and his wife and they described the condition i could see it on 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 skype how we did our sessions but his legs were in a terrible state and and he had no feeling, no sensation, no movement, um, and there was minimal circulation. And what it all came down to was the fact that he had held deep, deep, deep resentment to his mother and his siblings for pretty much the entirety of his life. Um, And and essentially all of those feelings had caught up with him. They'd been made relevant by some other negative um, experiences that he'd had in business. And then all of that caught up with him. And essentially he just lost the use of his legs And by going through, by by following the process that we did, we were able to literally unwind things. Um, Circulation came back into his legs. All the sores healed up. He started to get sensation back in his legs, and he got some uh, muscular function back. Um, And then I have to say, unfortunately, it wasn't it wasn't a happy ending to the story. Unfortunately, because um, he experienced some really strong emotions. I didn't see him for a period of months, and then he experienced some really strong emotions that linked him, via his wife's family linked him with the negative emotions of resentment that he held with his um, with, with, his, with his, from his family history. Um, and the symptoms just came back again. They literally just literally came back again because he's experienced similar feelings of resentment um, with his with his wife's family. Uh, and so that, that stuff is just so powerful. So when we can leave resentment and jealousy behind and focus on the success of others, then what we're focusing on, Is that's literally us holding a successful picture and a successful image in mind, and if we can genuinely, sincerely feel elevated emotions for the success of others, then essentially that's what our mind—that's what we're holding in mind, and that's what that's what we begin to manifest, and we begin to manifest better outcomes in ourselves. And so this is something that it's kind of dear to my heart because I live in Australia, and I I always say we we are the world champions of tall poppy syndrome in this country. We we just know and and it's and it's hardwired into us that's these limiting beliefs and um these limitations and these negative um thought patterns that are kind of deeply ingrained in our culture because it, it in in our culture it's it's thought of poorly if you stand out and if you speak up and tell people that you've done something really good and parents tell the kids and it's so common in this country. People parents tell their kids that you know you are no more special than anybody else. Don't you think that you are anything more special? You're all the same, you know. Don't you go and you know shoot off at the mouth and tell people how great you are and have a big head and and I could not tell you how many times I've heard parents um re, you know telling their kids that and 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 how many times I've heard people telling me that their parents told them that and essentially what that does is it puts that limiting belief into the child that I am no more special than anybody else. So as soon as I see somebody you know, who has something that looks a little bit more more special, they are that tall poppy, well, then I then straight away automatically, because it's hardwired into my subconscious, I then begin to focus on that lack between them and me, because I've been told that I'm no more special than anybody else. And so they shouldn't be either. So why should they have more than me? And really, what I'm looking at is that perceived lack between what they've achieved and what I haven't. And so, and and literally, I just continue to manifest a negative outcome. So, it's a really, really important thing to just be aware. Celebrate the wins. Celebrate your wins. Celebrate the wins and successes of others, and you can have a positive impact and positive influence on on your own output of life.
0: Yeah. Well, it certainly speaks to the power of awareness and and just being able to uh, get curious. I think about our our thought patterns and the way that we perceive the world and, and our reality in, in so many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a lot of yoga teachers and physical movement practitioners in our audience. Mm-hmm. Um, as a way to kind of wrap up today, I'd love if we can touch on the topic of adaptive and passive neuroplasticity as it relates to movement and and learning new skills. Mm,
1: okay. Fantastic. So so let's, let's just get the definitions straight first. So neuroplasticity is basically the brain's ability to continue to optimise itself over time. So the brain is just constantly looking to try and perfect itself over time. Now, perfect is not always exactly the way we might hold a context or, or a projection around what we believe perfect to be. Perfect, as far as the brain's concerned, is uh, optim- optimal energy efficiency and 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 perhaps a level of function. Sometimes it's not always about function. The brain will try and maintain the functions that it believes are necessary and the the functions that it believes it's going to need to use. So if we allow functions to to go dormant and we don't use them for a long period of time, then the brain will look to prune those connections because it's looking to try and not expend energy on maintaining circuits that it's just not going to use. So the brain is literally a use use, use it or lose it environment. And, that, and and that is incredibly true so neuroplasticity is literally the process of creating new connections in the brain we have a thing called functional neuroplasticity and we have structural neuroplasticity functional neuroplasticity is basically the brain finding new ways to communicate down existing pathways so you have these existing circuits and then the brain can just can uh, it can work out how to send signals down novel pathways novel pre-existing pathways and so there's just more ways to find a memory more ways to find a function more ways to find a particular output structural neuroplasticity takes a little bit longer so functional neuroplasticity can happen in seconds you can you can literally create as many as 1.8 million new connections every second with focus movement and complex attention uh, sorry with complex movement and focus attention i should say um, but that's a phenomenal amount of new connections that you can make. That's that's close to a hundred million new connections a minute. So you can add incredible new function um, via neuroplasticity in a really short period of time with the right exercises and the right approach to movement. Structural neuroplasticity takes generally takes a little bit longer. So it's what we call arborization. Arborization is like tree branches spreading out and forming actual new structural connections. Um, that can take a couple of weeks. It can take a couple of weeks of um, of adding, of literally moving in these new ways and maintain these new different different pathways before you trigger the brain into this new these new structural connections. Um, but I believe that again via these subconscious beliefs and those subconscious programs, everybody's ability is going to be slightly different. So if you if you um, manage to rewire the brain successfully and you celebrate that and you basically take that on as a new belief that you literally have. In, Incredible capacity for neuroplasticity. However, that belief is encoded in the brain. Your ability to create new connections is going to be is going to be greater than someone who believes that, that that's just not possible. Now, the way that neuroplasticity works is we have um, we have adaptive neuroplasticity and passive neuroplasticity. Passive neuroplasticity is what we have as children, and that's literally what, what we we're talking about before. That children can just learn by absorption; they don't even need to pay attention. So you can. You can go to a playground and a kid who's never been on the monkey bars before can just be kind of standing there, not even really paying attention while they're waiting in line. Two or three or four other kids just jump on the monkey bars and go swinging across, and then that child who's never had a go basically jumps up and 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 produces an output that is somewhere close. It might not be perfect, but they can do it. As adults, and having worked as a, as a, a, a trainer and rehab specialist in movement, I could not tell you the number of times I saw adults get to that start line and couldn't even make that first step like really couldn't even work how to get themselves off that platform or couldn't work out how to you know jump off the ground onto a small box if they hadn't done it a long period of time because the brain just literally can't figure it out it hasn't it doesn't have that that passive neuroplasticity that they can just absorb create the new create the new context of movement and then just put it into play and there are specific brain areas that take care of that what we have as adults we lose, that, we lose that ability to, to have passive neuroplasticity sometime around the age of 25. And then as adults, we need focused attention. We actually need to concentrate and hold attention on that which we wish to change if we're going to influence it. So if we're talking about being more effective in our movement practice or more effective as a movement coach, what we need to do is we need to make sure that the people that we're coaching are actually paying attention, and the way that we make people pay attention is we need to give them novel stimuli because the brain will always look to go to autopilot. It'll always look to switch off. And any coach who's tried to give demonstrations will probably be able to tell you that they've given demonstrations to clients. Um, and then when they turned around and ask the clients to, to perform that movement, the client has looked and said, I'm sorry, I, I don't even know what you did there. I wasn't even paying attention. Sorry, I was looking somewhere else. I don't know what I was thinking. You know, I, I know I was supposed to be paying attention, but I wasn't. And so... If when we, when we introduce novel stimuli, that garners attention. Straight away, the brain's looking at saying, well, hang on, I don't have an automated program for that. If I go and demonstrate a squat that that person does poorly but has done for many, many years, I demonstrate the squat. What's happening in that person's brain is the brain's looking at that and, and basically, for want of a better expression, basically just says... Oh, yeah, yeah, squat. I've got a program for that. Okay, no, I know what that is. Okay, and then it switches off because it believes it's already got a program. And that program might look absolutely terrible, but as far as that brain is concerned, it already has a program. If I go and introduce a squat on a stability device where there's a chance that I might fall I might fall off, the brain looks at that and says, whoa, hang on, I don't have that. What is that? I need to figure that out. And so it needs to place its attention on how am I going to balance? How am I going to hold the bar or the weight or whatever it is? Where does my body need to be? Where does my body weight need to be so that I don't fall off this stability device? And so it needs to pay attention to try and figure that out because I've just introduced a novel stimulus. So attention is key. There needs to be some level of urgency. If there's a level of urgency um, to, like if there's a consequence, and so consequence could be that there's some small potential fall, there's some small potential risk, or there's a score if you're playing a game. If you make, if you, if you, uh, introduce any level of competition, then if there's a score and you could lose, then that creates a level of urgency. So we need attention, we need urgency, um, and we need a level of alertness. We need to we need to be alert to be able to make these new connections. So something that I advise people on if, if you're a movement coach and you're looking to try and make sure that you are creating new connections and new connections equate to new function and increased, improved function in the people's brains that you're working with and as such their bodies. Then you need to make sure that you're you are paying attention to attention, urgency, and alertness, and you can take care of that in your warm up, or you can take care of that in short little bouts in between sets with people. So there might be fun little games. There might be some there might be some little game that you play. There could be some little drill that is a balance challenge, something that is just a little bit different. Um, there, it can be a movement flow routine that just makes the person really have to pay attention. And it doesn't have to be long you might it might only be 30 seconds 60 seconds where all you're doing is you're not tiring that person out you're just making them switch on pay attention and then you come back to the drill that you're trying to actually get them to integrate so those little those little cues are absolutely huge because you're just continually switching on the person's brain and then you're trying to get them to do the work that you're trying to do and i would near guarantee that if you do that in any way well there's almost no chance that you don't see an improvement in certainly in the session in the session, and then down the track in the the output of that individual.
0: Yeah, gosh, Scott, this is so fascinating. I mean, you are you have a wealth of knowledge and wisdom that you've shared with us on on the show today. Uh, for anybody that is looking to you know continue this conversation, or 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 even just learn a little bit more about. Uh, these topics that we've been talking about today, what would be the best way that they can connect with you or be a part of your community?
1: So, as I said, I am the Brain Guy on Instagram and Facebook. So the dot brain dot guy, uh, and then there's a website thebrainguy.co. dot co. So they're probably the easiest ways to get in touch. Um, and yeah, if there are questions that come up out of this one, because. Remember, we are talking about very often when we're expanding awareness around these com- the, these different concepts and some of these concepts for a lot of people will be concepts that have either just never been considered or certainly might not have ever been heard of before. So if they're new concepts, what you can experience is resistance. So if if you've listened this far, first of all, thank you for your attention. But second of all, if there was a point during this discussion that you found yourself just shaking your head or thinking, come on. That's, that's just right out there. That, no, I don't know about that. Literally what you've experienced is you've experienced your brain giving you resistance because it doesn't want to shift to a new reality. Because remember, the, the way the brain keeps us safe is by being able to predict where all the dangers are and where your brain believes that it has the best chance to do that and keep you safe is in the reality that you're in right now. And everyone's reality is their own everyone's reality is literally just a collection of their own perceptions. So we're all in our own realities. And when you hear something that's from a different reality, something that's slightly different, the brain will look at that and say, hang on, if I go down that path to that new reality, I don't know what the rules are. That means I can't keep you safe. If I can't keep you safe, I can't guarantee survival. So I'm going to make you feel uncomfortable. I'm going to make you shake your head. I'm going to make you feel a bit uneasy, a a bit unsure about this. So if you experience that at any point during this, 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 this chat, just check in with it just check in with it and, and and look at your own perceptions and just kind of ask a couple of questions and it may be an opportunity for growth that you've just stumbled upon um and so there's i've got plenty of information on the on on instagram and on Facebook that's kind of worth looking at but i'm also happy to um, answer a few questions if if people have any
0: Yeah. Well, I love catching your videos uh, on Instagram. So keep the, uh, you know, keep them coming. I think they're fantastic. Scott, thank you so much for being here with us on the show today. Uh, It's
1: been an absolute pleasure. I really, really enjoyed the chat and thank you very much for the opportunity to get to have the conversation.
0: So that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. And I really hope you'll join us next time. Mindful Matters is written, hosted, and recorded by me, Elaine Clark. Special thanks to Karen Zorzi, our editor, Tani Stoiber for the artwork, and our theme music by Bellwitz. If you can, please leave us a review. It helps others discover the show, and we really appreciate it. Let's keep these conversations going over at Blue Matter Project. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.